This year, a city once emblematic of the Irish Troubles is being transformed into a major festival venue. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened to the city, and it's the first time that this festival has come to Northern Ireland. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. A tour guide from Northern Ireland tells us why his neighbours, both Protestant and Catholic, are getting excited about the massive influx of entertainment coming to Derry as it becomes the UK's city of culture. Meanwhile, back in London, we'll hear how, ever since the Olympics last year, East London is becoming one of the city's trendiest neighbourhoods. And that's a neighbourhood in the last few years that has really come on in terms of small shops and oh, there's some great pubs and great restaurants around there. And American Jennifer Wilson tells us what the beaches of Croatia taught her. I never felt so free and unhindered by my own baggage when I was on the beaches around Croatia. Fun in London, Derry, and Croatia, just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. For decades, the city of Londonderry, or Derry, was generally known more for its part in the violent Irish troubles than for anything else. But that's all changing. In just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll find out about some big events coming up this year in the historic city of Derry in Northern Ireland and how being named the UK's City of Culture for 2013 has everyone looking forward to the year ahead. Then, we'll look into the emerging scene in the working-class East End of London. And later in the hour, we'll hear how Croatia just may have the coastal getaways of your travel dreams. Travelers absolutely love Ireland. It's one of the top destinations in Europe. Historically, people have not really thought seriously about the North. It's always the romantic destinations in the Republic of Ireland. But this is a big year coming up for the North. There's more and more stability. There's more and more confidence. And the second city of the North, Derry or Londonderry, depending on your heritage and your outlook, is having a big year. 2013's a celebration, a festival year for Derry, and we're joined by a Derryman who's uh, coming all the way from Ulster, Stephen McPhillamy. He runs the Youth Hostel in Derry. He's a tour guide. Stephen, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. So, Derry, Londonderry, I mean, if people grew up in the 70s and 80s, they heard Londonderry a lot. Uh, what's the right name? Uh, officially, the city is called Londonderry, and to the city's Catholic or nationalist majority, it is known as Derry. Ireland is an, an island of, what, four or five million people and 80% of the land and 80% of the people would be in the Republic and then the, the northern quarter or so would be uh, ruled from London and uh, Northern Ireland. Yeah, part of the United Kingdom. Derry is roughly 100,000 people and we have this big river in the middle called the Foyle and there's a West Bank and there's an East Bank and on the West Bank you have roughly 80,000 Catholic people and on the East Bank you have 20,000 Protestant people generally. And right. on the West Bank, the Catholics are feeling Irish and nationalist. And on the East Bank, the Protestant people overwhelmingly feel British and their yeah. political outlook And the river is a natural kind of border between the two groups. Yeah. yeah. But on the West Bank, there's these beautiful, historic, iconic, ancient city walls. Okay. And that's like the mecca of Ulster Protestantism because they built these walls in 1613 to keep the Irish out. That explains it. And that was sort of a matter of pride to keep the Londonderry town on the Catholic side of the river in with Ulster yeah. when uh, the line was drawn. Consequently, during the Troubles, during the 70s and 80s and 90s, it was the focus of a lot of tension and violence. Yeah, Derry definitely was a violent city or a city where lots of violence took place. And it did have all the international headlines for the wrong reasons now we're entering a new So you decided phase. to buy a, a, run a youth hostel in this town that had such a bloody reputation. Yeah, well, it's also my hometown, you know, and okay. home is where the heart is. So, I mean, financially, this youth hostel that I opened has never made me any millions, but it's a labor of love. And that's the key to this city. And that's why I think it's such a great city is that you have got these two divided communities who both love the place in equal amounts. May not love each other, but they love that land. So you got Catholics and Protestants loving this this historic town. Yeah, and we also have uh, loads of tourists now starting to come in, loving this historic town. And, and this year's a big deal. Right, well, this year, 2013, is our biggest year ever in our history. It's probably the best year for visitors since the Vikings arrived <laughs> in about the 9th century. This year, the number is going to completely spike upwards, the number of visitors. Here's the reasons why people are going to have a good time in our town this year. All right. Uh, we have four massive things happening. We have been awarded a festival called the UK City of Culture. Now, it's the first time that this festival has ever been offered or organised. It's a UK-led initiative. 
It's interesting because, you know, a good majority of citizens in the city don't like being in the UK. I know, so that's what I was going to ask you. You got this, the title is the United Kingdom City of Culture. It's kind of like those English people want to make us a a showcase for their tourist industry. Yeah, and that's why if you go around the town now, a lot of the big signs say the City of Culture Festival, they've conveniently dropped the UK. UK. but, But it is officially, I have to stress, the UK City of Culture. That festival is going to bring thousands of extra visitors uh, it brings a thing called the Turner Prize, which is one of the biggest modern art exhibitions in the in the United Kingdom. The Royal Ballet are coming. And then we're going to have this big pageant in the middle of the city called, I think, the Return of St. Column Kill. Mm-hmm. Because our city was founded in 546 when Belfast was just this little sheep pen uh, up <laughs> in the northeast. We had a, a monastic citadel on top of a hill founded by a holy warrior monk called St. Columba. Okay. Um, and he built it in the middle of an oak forest and the Irish word for oak forest is Dura. And that's where Derry comes from. Okay. And then when the English arrived in 1613, they decided to change the name of the city to Londonderry because they were colonists from Shakespearean London. But this really is the 400th anniversary exactly. of the arrival of the English colonial yeah. overlords yeah. establishing a Protestant toehold in the most Catholic part of Ireland. Absolutely. So it's the 400th anniversary of that, but it's also the 400th birthday of our walled city. Well, you had to bring wall to protect the settlers from the angry indigenous people outside. Yeah, and for me as a tour guide, I mean, it's been the most brilliant teaching aid ever. Instead of having to point out where the walled city used to be or there's the two foot tall piece of the old wall, we can stand up and you've stood there with me on top of this glorious... It's the best wall in Ireland, yeah, really. That's the only wall in Ireland, actually. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like an elevated street around the city. And for years, the business people called it a noose around the city. Right. And now they're calling it a necklace around the city, you know, because oh, it's opened up and tourists can walk around it. So the noose is now the necklace. And Well, this is interesting because you could for years it. as a guide, I've been describing my hometown as a divided city. But right. now people are describing my hometown as a shared city. So this is a new beginning for Derry. Absolutely. And to be a shared city, obviously you have to have some physical infrastructure in place that helps you share it more. So we built this bridge in 2011. It's called the Peace Bridge. It goes right across, spans the River Foyle. It's this ultra funky design. It was, I think, cost 14 million euro. Now, obviously, we didn't pay now for that it. that was paid by, by Britain. No, it was paid by the European Union. By the European so. Union. But does it, it actually intentionally connects the Catholic and the Protestant yeah, it, parts it, of it, town? Yeah, it connects the East Bank to the West Bank. Right. And so it connects the Irish and the British side or the Catholic and the Protestant side or the Nationalist and the Unionist side. And at the start, a lot of people were a wee bit cynical and, and thought it was a bit gimmicky. However, it's been a huge success. It's a pedestrian bridge. It's a pedestrian bridge. It's part of a European Union project called Shared Space to try and bring the two sides together in a shared space. And I think it's worked out brilliantly. I have two German Shepherd dogs and I live on the West Bank. Uh And there's a big park on the East Bank and I'd only ever been to it six times in my life. And now with this 14 million euro bridge... I've been over to it about 45 times in the last three months. I think 14 million euros is a fine price to pay for something that brings a, a troubled city together like yeah, that. Yeah, well, we've, we've spent don't 14 you million any, on worse things. You, you must, yeah, I bet, like rebuilding buildings that have been bombed. And on the other side of the bridge, ironically, is the former HQ of the British Army. Their parade ground, where you used to see helicopters coming in and out, right. like the, the embassy in Hanoi, and it's like the Green Zone in Baghdad. Now what you have is this open concert venue where they have live bands and they have And this is a change that's just the last five or ten years. I mean, ten years ago, that would have been a hated symbol of British imperialism. And now you walk across this fancy pedestrian bridge and you have a cultural festival. Yeah, and they have this big banner across the front of the British Army base. When this festival for this year was being decided, people were thinking, well, what should we call it, Derry, or should we call it London Derry? And some marketing gurus got together and said... Let it be legendary. Oh, I love so, that. Yeah, yeah. Legendary. And that smacks of Londonderry too, you oh. know, but it keeps everybody kind of happy. And there's this big banner now saying, let it be legendary. And all the young ones are kind of using that slogan. I bet that tip on both sides. Yeah, people, I think young, Younger generations probably so tired of this. Let's move on. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy. And Stephen's from uh, Derry, legendary in the north of Ireland. A Catholic family grew up in this troubled city. And now it's a new beginning for the town. Great festival year, 2013. Stephen, I remember when I was last in Londonderry or Derry, really impressed by the political art. I find political art really powerful, but it tends to remind people that there was all the violence on both extremes. You have extremist Catholic and extremist Protestant, extremist Republican and extremist Unionist, right? 
What's the state of that art today? What do people think when they look at it? Well, I, from experience, would have to say that the vast majority of visitors coming into Derry would want to see the murals and are very interested in them. But I've noticed now over the last few years that as I get older and the tourists get younger, less and less of them are fully aware of what the murals mean. Yeah. In our city centre, there's a neighbourhood called the Bogside where uh, the British Army shot dead 14 civilians in 1972 in an event called Bloody Sunday. And I was there recently with a, a group of 18 to 20-year-old Australian backpackers and I was showing them the mural of Bloody Sunday and one said to me, what the hell happened in Bloody Sunday? I never heard of this. And I was explaining the story and I said, well, you probably would know better from the U2 song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And she responds by saying, well, who are you 2 I've never heard any of this <laughs> stuff. You know, so our conflict in the north of Ireland ended in the late 90s. So if you're an 18-year-old Australian, you're, it's kind of beyond your remit. So, Or even but, if you're an 18-year-old Irish person or, or English person, it's less a part absolutely. of your heritage. But that being said, you know, you see people there from America and Britain and whatnot and from the Republic of Ireland and everywhere else coming who are in their 40s or 50s when they grew up with these images on their TV screens mm-hmm. whereas the younger ones have, you know, tourists have never seen that. So the, the murals are a huge attraction. Um, some of them are quite abstract. Some are, are more cultural these days and uh, some of them are still pretty hardline and radical but they're a big part of the city's fabric and they're a really amazing contrast to the old city walls that are up on top of the hill and nearly every guidebook would recommend coming to see the murals of Derry as a so, big attraction. Stephen, this is such an exciting chance this year to have uh, all of these festivities going on in Derry. A lot of people go to Dublin and it feels like Ulster and Derry are just a world away. How easy is it to get from Dublin to Derry? Well, it's easy enough. If you can get to Belfast, which is two hours from Dublin... Because there's the new bullet train that goes from Belfast to Dublin yeah. in two hours. Get to Belfast easily, and from Belfast to Derry, simple. A bus every hour on the half hour. You can also take a train along the north coast. That takes forever. And how long on the bus? Uh, one hour and 45 minutes, max. We haven't even talked about the rest of Ulster, but there is so much to see in Northern Ireland, but anybody heading up there this year should be sure to go to Derry. The festival goes all year long, but what would be one thing we'd want to keep in mind? The biggest event that's happening in our city this year is happening in August. It's called Fla Ceol na Heron. And Ceol, C-E-O-L, Ceol is the Irish for music. Fla, F-L-E-A-D-H, means big gathering of musicians. And we are going to have up to 15, maybe 20,000 traditional Irish musicians coming to Derry from all over the world, not just from Ireland. We're going to have an estimated 300,000 people. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened to the city, and it's the first time that this festival has come to Northern Ireland. It's always been in the Republic, so it took a lot of you-know-what for the people who organised this to, you know, bring it over the border, and it's very symbolic, and I've just cleared my diary for that entire 10 days, and I'm just going to party like never before. We're going to have 20,000 musicians. My hostel will be sold out, Ching ching. <laughs> ching. Bring it ching. on. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Stephen McPhillamy, I'll be there in spirit. Thanks for joining well, us. And thank enjoy you very 2013. Much. From Derry, our next stop is London, as Will Hyde introduces us to his favorite parts of the working class eastern end of London. Hang out with the East Enders at 877-333-7425 next on Travel with Rick Steves. London seems to sprawl forever. But when you see the city as a collection of colorful neighborhoods, that sprawl is actually what makes exploring London such a rewarding adventure. The 2012 Olympics gave the city a chance to re-energize an industrial zone over in the city's east end. And now, that working-class neighborhood is turning into one of the trendiest spots for artists, young adults, immigrants, and hipsters. 
Joining us right now from London to tell us what's making the city's East End come alive is travel writer Will Hyde. Will, thanks for joining us. That's quite all right. Thank you. So what's, what's the news in, in London? Where are things moving? What's, what's happening? What, what should a tourist know if they want to get beyond Big Ben? Well, I think if it's your first time in London and, you know, you want to check off all the major sites, then, you know, they're all there still. You'll be glad to know. Um, but if you're a second time visitor or you want to see a, a slightly um, grungier but trendier bit of London, then head east. A lot of London, I think, uh, certainly in, in terms of stores and shops, the rents have got so much that a lot of downtown London is very samey. Uh, not just in terms of stores that you would have in the States anyway, but uh, it's it's very generic stores that we get all over Britain. And there's been a, a movement recently to the east of London where it's it's still the one part of town where rents are low enough that there's still some individuality and uh, you can get some one-off shops. And, and mm-hmm. centred on a, a place called Redchurch Street, I think, is, is the main focal point of that, which is near Old Street Tube Station. Okay, what what is the name of the street again? Redchurch Street. Redchurch. And what is the um, tube stop? Uh, the nearest one there is Old Street. And there's also a, a new East London overground line that's been opened about a, a year or slightly longer. And there's a stop there called Shoreditch High Street. And that would get you straight into the heart of things. See, this is so important to be able to know what's emerging. Because as you said, I love that term. You called it samey. Things feel samey. And I noticed in England, probably even more so than other places, it feels like, is chains are everywhere. Even, even pubs yeah. are faking like they're one-offs, yeah. but if you look at it carefully, they've all got the same menu and the same formula. Absolutely, yep. I mean, it's it's sad. I, I'm not an economist. I don't know what the answer is, but, uh, I mean... Tough for a one-off to compete, you know? They, there's an economy of scale, I guess, when you have 40 pubs. Yeah, I mean, my, my local um, high street has four Starbucks just yeah. on the one street. I mean, don't wish to slag off anyone in Seattle, but do we really need four Starbucks <laughs> on one street? I don't think so. Uh, you know, when it comes to Starbucks, it is amazing how it has taken uh, London by storm. And Absolutely. it does provide a comfortable alternative to a pub. And talking about trendy and so on, I've got a theory that as things sort of ramp up to be high-powered and compete in a globalized world, you want a drug that pumps you up rather than makes you relax, and there's more cafes and coffee shops than there are pubs these days. Do you see any trend that way towards cafes, away from pubs? Um, I'm not sure away from pubs, but definitely. I mean, the thing is, Britain, you know, you could say that we've had coffee shops that operated back in the 1700s, but even so, we still don't really have a a strong coffee drinking tradition in the same way that you do in the States, because obviously we all like a nice cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, but just recently, there's been a big push by some very entrepreneurial Australians and New Zealanders who've come over. And certainly in certain parts of town, especially the east, there's lots of little coffee shops uh, have sprung up. And the the drink of choice, which has almost become a cliche in itself, if you want to you know, have your skinny jeans and your non-ironic moustache, is the uh, flat white, which is kind of a creamier cappuccino which I think New Zealanders would say was invented in Wellington and Aussies would say was invented in Melbourne or Sydney. And uh, now that's big all over London, so much so, in fact, that you can now get a flat white in all Starbucks. So they've jumped on that bandwagon. If I want to sound really uh, like a local, hip, sophisticated coffee drinker, I'll just go into a a one-off coffee shop and order a flat white. Get a flat white, yep, and then you're there. What is a flat white? How is it different than a latte? Um, gosh, someone, I can hear Australians listening to your show now who are reaching for the phone, but I would describe it as a stronger latte. Mm -hmm. In this coffee shop sort of culture, are people going for uh, muffins and cupcakes are trendy in the States and this sort of thing? What's going on in the bakery scene in London? Well, I think um, a lot of these places do breakfast as well, which is good if you're visiting town because accommodation in London, as anyone who's who's tried to book it recently will know, is not cheap. And one thing that does add on to that cost is if you want to um, have breakfast at the hotel, which generally from the breakfast I've had in London hotels are, are not that standout. And so really what people are going to end up doing is probably maybe going to Starbucks because there's one everywhere for a muffin or a lot of these Aussie places do a great breakfast as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a step away from the usual fairly unhealthy English fry-up of baked beans and right. fried eggs and sausage and bacon. And 
you're thinking more corn fritters and things like avocado, which uh, certainly to a fairly unhealthy <laughs> British population is an eye-opener. I'm speaking with Will Hyde, and Will's a travel writer in London. We're talking about trendy trends in London. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Cora's on the line in Eugene, Oregon. Cora, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks. I'm going to be traveling to London with my fiancé as part of our uh, backpacking trip this summer, and we've been looking for a hostel or somewhere to stay, but we just haven't figured out what neighborhood would be best for young couple um, looking to be able to you know, go out at night and things like that um, and still be able to do the sightseeing while we're there. Um, in terms of neighborhoods, one of my favorites is Marylebone, which is just off Oxford Street, which is the main shopping drag of London. And that's a neighborhood in the last few years that has really come on in terms of small shops and or there's some great pubs and great restaurants around there. In terms of actually staying there, though, it, I wouldn't say it's particularly cheap, unfortunately. Uh, but what I would say with London is as long as, you know, you can just hop on the, the tube, the subway, and first things first, make sure you get yourself an Oyster card, which is the prepaid travel card. And the website for that is tfl.gov.uk because if you pay cash on the bus or the subway in London, the tube, it's an arm and a leg. I think one way now a cash fare is about £4.30, which is roughly $6. And they price it so highly to try and uh, make you get this prepaid travel card. But what they don't do is a great job of telling you that you should get it in the first place. <laughs> so uh, the point of that, that long-winded answer is grab yourself an Oyster travel card and maybe stay in a different area. There's a new hotel mini chain i think it's actually based in malaysia you know the the joys of globalization called tune uh, t-u-n-e you'd say tune we'd say tune and i think you can get a room for about a double room for about 35 pounds a night which is what 50 dollars they operate on a low-cost airline basis which is that the sooner you book the lower price mm. you get and I think the more basic rooms don't even have a window and you also have to pay for a towel. But if you just want a place to lay your head, then that's not a bad one. And there's one near King's Cross. I think there's one near Westminster. Another option I would say is if you want uh, a place that's got a trendy vibe around about it, uh, there's a spot in London called Old Street, O-L-D Street. And there's a hotel near there called the Hoxton Hotel and Google their website, and they have periodic £1 a night sales, which is a, a bit of a marketing gimmick. But on the other hand, even when that's not going on, it's a fairly low price. And I mean, if you want to visit some decent pubs and cafes and restaurants and certainly nightclubs, then that's a good place to be based. And you could just uh, walk from your hotel to all those. So, Cora, I would reiterate what Will is saying is don't let your interest in visiting trendy places dictate where you're going to sleep. I think that's two different things, and the, the subway system is so great. And all over Europe these days, great cities are instituting these uh, systems where you have to buy a card, and then once you pay for the card, which is a nominal fee, then you get to travel like a local for one pound or dollar or two a ride. And it's a way just to let the lazy tourists that don't know what's going on pay five or six dollars a ride who don't bother with getting mm. that card. So wherever you are in Europe, if they have a card, just buy it. It seems a little um, complicated, but it's not. You just swipe it and you top it up when you need more mileage on it, and it, it just works really great. Have a good time, Cora. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You bet. This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Will Hyde about trendy trends in London. Will, we're talking about things moving east. I'm fascinated by the whole tube system, and we all know the circle line and how beautiful and complete it is and so on. But if you look at the tube map now, the big tube map, there is like a whole new network emerging, just coming out of nowhere, it feels like, to the east, like a parallel system. And uh, just from that, you can sort of derive things are definitely moving east, aren't they? Yes, definitely. I mean, the, the center of it, I would say there's a street called Redchurch Street, and there's lots of street art on there. You say graffiti, I say street art and small, trendy uh, individual shops. And to get there, yeah, you can get there on the, well, to Old Street Tube, which is the one I just mentioned, and then there's like a, a 10, 15-minute mm -hmm. walk. Uh, or also, there, yes, there's this new East London Overground line, which they revamped um, a couple of years ago, and that will drop you off at Shoreditch High Street, which you're just then about 30 seconds away from Redchurch Street. Also, if you go there, you can walk down Brick Lane, which is um, home to lots of 
curry houses, which is, you know, people in Britain say that the, the national dish no longer is, is beef, it's, it's curry, which seems to be true. Isn't there a place called the Curry Mile or something? That's probably Brick Lane, yeah. When you walk down Brick Lane, there's lots of people enticing you into their, their shops and there's nothing wrong with that. But just if you go a wee bit further to an area called Whitechapel, there are a few restaurants there. One of them is called Tayabs, T-A-Y-Y-A-B-S. Uh, another is the Lahore Kebab House. And there's another one called Nidu's Grill, which is N-E-E-D-O apostrophe S grill. And those, I mean, they're cheap because they're owned by Muslims. You have to uh, take your own wine or beer if you want Mm -hmm. to. But you can make an absolute meal out of the starters, delicious spicy lamb chops, if you like food from that region. And it's it's probably one of the best value meals you're going to have in London. London-based travel writer Will Hyde taking us deep into London's East End right now on Travel with Rick Steves. By the way, Will blogs about his travels on his website, which has the clever name of BenThereDone.it. He's got reports and photos from recent trips to New Orleans, New York, and Cape Town. And you'll find some fun entries that he posted about East London during the Olympics in the summer of 2012. You'll find all those web links in the show details for this week's Travel with Rick Steves. And that's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Well, just to close things up, we just have a few seconds left. I'm going to say a few words, neighborhoods. Just give me a little one-phrase description in your mind of what characterizes them. Notting Hill Gate. Americans. South Kensington. French. (laughs) South Bank, all the the Jubilee Walk, the South Bank of the Thames River. Um, Oh, that's a more difficult one. You've got me there. Very nice neighborhood, uh, a very emerging. Used to be just a more touristy neighborhood. Now a lot more people are moving there. I like it a lot. Soho. Uh, Still funky, vibrant, late night. The place to sort of get a little bit tipsy and no one's ever going to know at home. So, yeah, that's the place to go for a few pints. Gay? Soho? Yeah, uh, still Old Compton Street is the heart of gay London, uh, but but it's it's very mixed, so every, everyone around there has a good time. Uh, it's beautiful energy there, whether you're gay or straight. Definitely, yeah. How about Brixton? Where are we? Brixton, madam. <gasps> Brixton, Brixton, wind down the window, wind down the window. Play some dubstep, diss my foot. Hey, Brixton. Brixton, yeah. Uh, still uh, becoming more residential, still worth an explore. Uh, it's I'd... Caribbean culture, is that right, in Brixton? Oh, still very much, still very much, yes, definitely. I was mugged in Brixton 20 years ago. Is it still dangerous? Not, not like it was, okay. not like it was. It's I mean, it's, if you it's... want a sort of cutting-edge... Uh... I think people who were there 20 years ago would say it's uh, a lot more yuppified than it was. But yeah, uh... right. How about the city? The city is the Wall Street. Uh, you know, it's full mm. of uh, button-down businessmen in the day. At night, is it dead, or is there a good club scene there? Um, it's still pretty quiet, and especially on weekends. I mean, I, I think it's a, a good time to go down there. You can walk into the city um, at the weekend. There's no one around. You can go up the monument, which mm-hmm. is a tower that is dedicated to the Great Fire of London back way back when. And then from there, you could go uh, walk over the river and go to Borough Market on a Saturday mm, morning. That's and great. It's, a, it's a, a great thing to do. And there's this magic time, I think, after work, but before people go home when the pubs are lively with all the local professionals. Mm. I like that. Absolutely. And finally, the Docklands. Um, Docklands, I would say the jury is still out. Uh, People even now are still waiting for it to up and come. And it just hasn't quite happened. I mean, Canary Wharf is an extension of the financial centre and it's buzzing during the week and probably on weeknights. But, you know, to be honest, from a tourist point of view, I I I personally wouldn't bother. Kind of samey. Kind of samey, yeah. <laughs> I got a new kind word. And the Docklands, by the way, are the new Manhattan of London where all the skyscrapers are. And at the same time, there's vast underground malls and lots of samey uh, chain restaurants that are kind of trying to be feel like one-offs. Will Hyde, what an exciting opportunity to update on London. If you were going to take somebody out for a, a drink in one spot, an American that's going to London and they want to really feel like they've left the tourist and they're hanging out with a, a great local scene, where would you take them? I would say Marylebone because it's tourist-friendly without being touristy. Uh, and you can wander around, especially in summer. You know, it's light here in London until gone 10 o'clock at night. And then in winter as well, it's got a nice cosy vibe. Two things I would say. I've got no interest in these whatsoever. But if you want a decent selection of pubs, two great websites are fanciapint.com and beerintheevening.com. And you, you can find all sorts of good places on there. So just go from pub to pub. All right. Talking to you, I fancy a pint anyway. Will Hyde, thanks so much and happy travels. Thank you very much.
You can hear more from Will Hyde about one of his favorite vacation cities, Cape Town in South Africa. He also describes an Appalachian road trip he took in search of old-time mountain music venues. And there's plenty more on Ireland, too, from Stephen McPhillamy. Search the radio archives at ricksteves.com. Willie Weir has found that the time it takes to travel by bicycle gets him close to the kindness of everyday people in the places he visits. And it lets him stock up on memorable travel experiences. Here's another dispatch from his two-wheeled travels. Want to send an unforgettable gift that will also be a lasting travel memory? Make a birthday recording. It's cheap, well, and it's fun. Choose someone you love, that's the motivation, and make sure you travel with some sort of audio recording device. Now, while you're traveling about your own country or through some exotic land, ask people you meet along the way to sing or say or send some sort of birthday greeting. You see, most people get nervous when you put a microphone in front of their face, but if you give them a job, a purpose, they, they often shine. When I cycled across Canada, I decided to make a birthday tape. Yes, that's how long ago it was. For my sister-in-law, Julie, every opportunity I had, I asked folks to sing, tell a story, or just say hello. The gift was a hit, and it also ended up being an amazing way to capture some of the voices of people I'd met along the way. Your audio birthday greeting will undoubtedly include some traditional songs. Some non-traditional tunes. West Rock, West Rock, oh, what happy day. Some amazing accents. Hi, Judy. We're out here from South Africa and having a wonderful time. How are you doing? I'm Floyd Taylor from Greenville, South Carolina. Possibly a poem. Frozen Dream by Shel Silverstein. Not all birthday greetings will be from humans. Flip speak. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday, Instruments are always a good way to add some local flavor. <laughs> Hi, Julie. Happy birthday. And some you'll just play over and over. Happy birthday to you. But however your birthday tape turns out, it will be a valued gift that says you are thinking about the recipient throughout your travels. And for you, it will remain a treasured memory of the people that you met along the way. And goodbye. Have a good birthday. When it's time we go, they throw us in the lake. W.S. Oh, I don't know that one. Happy birthday to you. Willie Weir's website is willieweir.com. That's spelled W-E-I-R. His latest book of travel essays and observations is called Travels with Willie. Jennifer Wilson and her family took my advice to travel like a temporary local to a whole new level when they uprooted themselves from Iowa and actually moved to a village of 800 people, plus several bears and wild boars, in the remote mountains of Croatia. Jennifer joins us next to tell us the highs and lows of her family's year in Croatia and the fun they had on the nearby Adriatic coastline, where fast food means carving into a pig spinning on a spit. Roast pig and coastal Croatia. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Zovem se Marijan Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem sa Rikom Stevesom. So that was Croatian. My name is Marijan Krišković. I come from the wonderful Croatian Mediterranean coast and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Once again in Croatian, zovem se Marijan Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem s Rikom Stevesom packing up your family to move to a remote village on another continent thousands of miles away, well, that's not the typical way most Americans get out of a rut. But that's what Jennifer Wilson did when she, her architect husband, and two children left the comforts of Des Moines in Iowa and spent the better part of a year in the land of her ancestors. They rented a home in the same rustic village her great-grandparents left when they emigrated to America. Jennifer first shared her family's adventures with us last May on Travel with Rick Steves. And her book about that journey is called Running Away to Home. But there's another chapter to their story, and that's when they came out of the mountains to explore Croatia's increasingly popular beaches and coastal scene. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Now, when you think about the Croatian coast, first, give us the lay of the land. It's, it's basically the stretch from Venice to Dubrovnik along the Adriatic Sea. How do you break it up? What are the highlights? Well, the coastline stretches for more than 3,500 miles, and over 1,100 of that is mainland. 
about 2,500 is on island coasts. So when we were in the village itself in Merkapai in the mountains, we would spend at least a day every week where we would drive to the coast and we'd enjoy those beaches. And we kind of traced along the northern coast of the country. So if we look at that, it's about 1,000 miles long. It's just speckled with literally thousands of islands. What should we know if we're planning a trip, trying to break up the trip from Venice to Dubrovnik? What are the top two or three stops along the way, would you say? We really enjoyed going to Istria. It was kind of our favorite place to be just because my husband and I really like to eat. You know, rather than calling ourselves foodies, we always say we're feeders. We're from the Midwest, and we'll, we'll eat anything pretty much. And Istria has this series of um, little country tavern almost called Canobas. Now, this is great. This is like the slow food equivalent in Croatia from what we know about in Italy, isn't it? That's right. There's always a specialty at a Canoba. You know, it's usually fresh and from about five kilometers away. And you can eat the local specialty there. If you call them in the morning, they'll actually cook something on the open fire source that's in each of these taverns. It's just an open flame, and they'll cook what's called under the bell, which is kind of like a little tagine that would be on the on the fire. So this is a rustic um, taverna or something like that's that? That's exactly right. And it's a Croatian-style taverna called a konoba. Right. And, and what, what would be a, a highlight if you're traveling through the Istrian Peninsula and you want to stop at one of these very characteristic countryside tavernas? What would you eat? Well, you would have wine that was from the region. Um, they have a really nice Malvasia white wine that's very crisp, floral tasting. Um, the red wine, they'd actually call black wine, which I think it's called Terran is the type of wine. Right. So you'd drink that, and you'd also eat maybe truffles if they're in season. Um, you might have wild boar. You might have roasted rooster, um, but there was always an olive oil. So it's gamey, it's heavy, right. it's, you've got this bell, you've got an open kind of fire, right. and you've got rustic cuisine. And is it generally touristy, or do you have all sorts of interesting, colorful characters there that sort of uh, add to the ambiance? Well, we were there in the winter, and so there weren't any tourists at all. And the places were always full of people who were local, and I think that's how the locals eat when they go out for their sort of a long luxurious meal. I it mean, is a big deal, isn't it? They don't, it I mean, they're not eating and running. This is like, we're going to go out to a Konoba and stay there. And after the meal, you've even got your next courses, which are usually with different kinds of liquor and uh, it lasts and lasts and lasts. That's right. You know, you spend two or three hours just hanging around and talking with your friends and meeting the people at the harvest table next to you. And the beauty about that, we traveled with our two small children. The beauty about that type of dining was that the kids could just go outside. You're usually in the country. So you said a harvest table. What is that? You know, just a sort of a long communal table. Sometimes you'd be seated with two or three other families and enjoying their food with them. I remember one time sitting at an old wooden table next to the fire source, and we were eating pasta, ravioli it was, um, with truffles on it that were from right outside in the woods. And as we were eating, the truffle-sniffing dog was looking in the window at us. Oh, <laughs> jealous. He found the truffles and you got he to eat them. He just wanted to see if we thought his work was pretty good. How did they serve the truffles? Um, they would shave them on top of the pasta. Okay, so you got your pasta, and they come out, and they just, like, um, Parmesan almost. And they show the... you so you know that it's oh, truffles. Oh, man. And not to make it even worse for you, but the kids were playing outside, and their view in the distance was Venice. No. Yeah. This is just over the border. It's in the, the Slavic world, and hordes of people go to Venice, and they don't think you could actually see Venice. Literally, you could see Venice? Right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jennifer Wilson. Her book is called Running Away to Home, the story of uh, how she took her family, uprooted it from the Midwest, planted your family in your ancestral homeland in a small village in the hinterland of Croatia, had a powerful experience, especially for your kids, and her website has photos and videos from their adventures, and it's jennifer-wilson.com. Now, when I'm driving around Croatia, my memory is sheep on spits. You know, that was one of the things that we always pulled over when we saw sheep or pig on a spit. At first, I didn't know what that meant, and neither did Jim. We thought maybe it was a private party. But really, that's sort of their fast food sign. And so we'd always pull in, and you'd just sit down and kind of point at the neighbor's table. They would just cut pieces off this roasting Okay, pork. so, because I saw sheep on spits everywhere I was driving. And that was actually a billboard saying, hey, it's fresh, it's good, come on in, you right. can have some. right. You had kids with you. How did they handle the... I mean, because it's quite graphic to have that spear going right through the, the head of the sheep and it's slowly spinning over the That's fire. That's right. You know, the first time that happened, my kids had two drastically different reactions. My daughter, Zadie, is... She was always a picky eater before we traveled. But it turns out she just doesn't like complicated food. When she saw a pig on a spit, 
She knew exactly what Perfect. it was. That's, yeah. That's she pig sat down and she ate right. a plate of pork. <laughs> My son stood there, saw this pig, looked at me like I'd betrayed him somehow. And I said, honey, I've been telling you that food doesn't come from styrofoam. That's what food comes from. And to make it even worse, a guy came out from the shed and brought another pig out at the same time. There was one roasting, and it was fresh, and it was bloody. And he hefted it on the spit, and he kind of tipped his hat at the kids. And Sam didn't eat meat for several months after that. And, Mom, how old were your kids at this time? (laughs) At that time, they were four and seven. Talk about exposing them to the world. I'm speaking with Jennifer Wilson. Her book is called Running Away to Home. She took her four-year-old and her seven-year-old and her husband, and they went to... Her uh, ancestral homeland, Croatia, had an incredible time. We're talking now not about the the village where she spent a year with her family, but how they escaped from that on the beaches of the the Croatian coast. Jennifer, when we talk about the Croatian coastline, the Dalmatian coast, what are your favorite uh, beaches and, and why? Well, like you said, we used beach time as our break from the village, our break from the inland. And so we went to these just idyllic places that were almost dreamy. And there were so many on the coast. We were sort of on the northern line of the coast between Istria and mainland Croatia. One of the beaches we really loved, and it was more of a sort of a sightseeing place, was in Pula. It's at the southern tip of Istria. Uh Uh-huh. They have a Roman amphitheater. Pula is famous for its Roman amphitheater. That's right. And you can see the sea right from the amphitheater. It's just knockout gorgeous. P-U-L-A, one of the best Roman amphitheaters surviving, I think, to this day. And you can combine it with a visit to the beach. Absolutely. And you can check out the working marina. The kids just love looking at those boats. And there's a huge sort of cobblestone common area where you can sit and have coffee and watch everybody enjoying the water. And you can watch the kids enjoying the water, which, again, for parents traveling with kids, letting the kids be able to run and you just hang out and have a drink is perfect. The beaches are basically pebbly, aren't they? Right. The The sort of white, flat stones was a mother's dream. I hate sand. But a rocky beach means you don't bring anything into the car. You don't bring anything in your swimming suit. We would just lay on this rocky beach, and the rocks are really nice and smooth, and they warm up in the sun, mm. and it was, oh, it was just wonderful. My daughter had the perfect idea. She just piled flat rocks all over her legs and belly, It was just the perfect sort of warm stone massage, you know. Americans don't vacation on the Croatian beaches very much, but they are very busy with tourists. Who comes there? Who keeps them in business? You know, we we always saw Italian families, German families, a lot of British um, around the Istrian Peninsula. But mostly these were Croatians that were going to the beach. There was a beach that we went to called um, Bursic, it's sort of a medieval village, and it's really very medieval-looking. But they have these little tiny cove beaches that you'll find only, you know, topless Croatians laying on. And you it's sort of climb down into these little cove areas and just enjoy the beach. And it's those clear pebbles, not a tourist in sight, all the locals just jumping from the rocks into this really deep water. It was, it was just stunning. Yeah, Croatians are uh, comfortable with toplessness in the beach, aren't they? That's right. And, you know, my kids didn't say a word about it. I sat there thinking, oh, my God. And Sam was seven at the time, right? Right. And, you know, his dad was like, hey, get a load of this. I can't believe it. But the kids, you know, they had no no concept. It's so fun to take your kids to Europe and let them just realize, hey, our norm is not necessarily the norm. And, And, you know, the other thing about that, there is a scene in the book, as an American woman, as a Midwestern American woman, I felt uncomfortable in a two-piece swimsuit on a beach. I got to the Croatian beaches. Nobody else feels that way. It's not about looking amazing, unless you're 17 and that's kind of your job. It's about going and enjoying the sun and enjoying the water. And I I never felt so free and unhindered by my own baggage when I was um, on the beaches around Croatia. Because of the local culture, to a certain degree? Yeah, it just wasn't a big deal. I mean, it didn't feel... There was no competitive air. It was uh, a lot of families hanging around on the beach together, and that's, it just felt, for some reason, more right. Maybe that's my own issue, but it's, it's, that's uh, great. No, I it get seemed that. more comfortable. I can understand that when I think of my time on, on Croatian beaches. Jennifer, there's a lot of, I know in the Slavic world, people are interested in spa resort activities and health kind of stuff. What sort of healing and special you know, spa destination kind of uh, options do you have on the Croatian coastline? Well, in general, if you look at the area around Opatia, if you look at a map, you can even look at it on Google Maps, it's all sort of a, a scenic route. 
That whole area back in the 1800s was sort of the Austro-Hungarian Empire's um, sanitarium type of place where you would go and your job was just to breathe clean air. So you can kind of go around that whole area and see a lot of these really ancient, decrepit places that used to be the, the most rich and famous spas to go to to sort of recover your, your health and your, your rest. For us, we took sort of an old-school uh, approach to that. There's a beach called Chizichi, and it, it's a mud beach. And you go there, it's a very shallow, warm sea, and you see the mountains in the distance, so it's lovely. You go there and you sort of rub all this mud all over your body and it's got these almost rice noodle-like um, sea grasses in it. And it's supposed to be healing for arthritis and it's supposed to be great for your skin. You know, I, all that's fun. I mean, it was just fun for us. I don't know if my... You did it? You went to the beach? We did. All this hot mud in the beach and, you just, the... <laughs> and your kids got into it too? We were all... And you it's know, like Halloween. That's right. And, and Zadie was four and so it was a very shallow sea and even she could be in that water really far out and it was only up to her tummy so it was a pretty safe place to be and you just have all these people that are just filthy out in the water. Oh, man. Sort of did it make off. you feel healthier? No, but but if you go up the hill, there's a place called Dobrine, which is a little hill village, and they they serve these homemade surlitza noodles, and that was really healing for me, actually, and the homemade wine. Because you're an eater, or a feeder, you said. (laughs) I'm a feeder. I'm a good feeder, yeah. Uh, All over uh, over your travels in in the European world, you can dip into these spas, and uh, Europeans are really into different health activities, and that's a fun dimension of your travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jennifer Wilson. Her book is called Running Away to Home, and Jennifer, you mentioned Opatia, and it's important for people to remember there is that sort of elegant Habsburg heritage here, even though it is the Slavic world today and former Yugoslavia. Remember, that's where uh, the Habsburg Empire was asserting itself back in 1914 when Franz Ferdinand went down to Sarajevo and uh, was assassinated. So there is that, that Habsburg heritage. It was part of the empire, and when uh, wealthy aristocrats wanted to get a little bit of Riviera coastline within their empire, Opatia was the destination, O-P-A-T-I-J-A, and it to this day is sort of a bell epic kind of resort that a lot of people like to go and be nostalgic. But I think far and away... My favorite stop between Venice and Dubrovnik is Rovine, and I believe you spent three months there writing up your book. Tell us about Rovine, and also tell us about uh, Rovine in the winter. Rovine to us, we visited in the summer to begin with to find a little apartment in which I'd write the book, and it was such an amazing place. It's still a working fishing village, and you'll still see the fishermen pulling in in late morning and selling fish to the local people, and uh, and, and we should give people a little visual picture. It's like a mini Venice with a pulled up with a little cute teepee style um, island where you've got the church's spire right on the top of the island. And St. Euphemia is on top of that church. And whichever direction she is facing, that's where the wind is blowing. And so, it tells the so, fishermen where, where they're going to be. So the golden saint is a weather vane. And then you've got all this rustic fishing activity and you've got this beautiful old Venetian architecture. Right. And you, you scouted it out in the summer. Right. And Rovine, by the way, is R-O-V-I-N-J. And you settle in there in the winter. So you really got to feel a little bit of the tempo of life. It is a bit of a resort in the summer. Was it just deadly in the winter, or was there a lot of activity there? It was very, very quiet in the winter. It was It's a really ideal place if you want to write your first book. There were really no... People would not talk to us. They were done with tourists for that time of the year. It was quiet, just a lot of, a lot of mellow people trying to rest up, because Rovine is packed during the summer. So when we were there, it was it was just a mellow time. And There's a lot of artists there in the summer. It feels like are, an art community. Are the artists there in the winter doing their work? Some, to some degree. They hang their art on the sea walls, and that's it's just so beautiful to see. Mm. Um, but, you know, for tourism purposes, I'm not sure I would go to Rovine in the wintertime. And it's funny, the first time that we went there, or when we went there, it snowed for the first time in 14 years. We were going to have our first temperate winter, but it didn't work out for us. And this was a chance for those local kids to see snow for their first time that's ever. That's right, that's right. And I, thank God that we didn't have many friends there because they would have all blamed us on bringing the snow. So, but you would recommend Rovine in the summer? In the summer, definitely. And in that whole area, that is the place to be. It's the one place that we would return to again and again without question. The thing that was that was great for us to be traveling with kids there is Istria all over, but in Rovine in particular, pizza is the best I've ever had it anywhere. And it's all in the wood-fired stone ovens, mm. and you can watch them cook it. 
and it was fresh and thin-crusted and beautiful ingredients, and, and we have not had pizza like we had in Rovine anywhere. And that is a reminder that it was once part of the Venetian Empire, so the uh, Italian is the second language, and there's a lot of that Italian heritage and cuisine apparently surviving. That's right. Jennifer, let's finish just by taking us to a, a small, less touristy place than Rovine, uh, one of the little tiny ports on an island or something like that. Is there an island and a little village on an island that you'd recommend that we'd be sure to have on our list when we visit the Croatian coastline? Absolutely. It is um, the beach that we, I think, love the most. It was our last beach. We went to the southern tip of Kirk Island, and the, the village is called Bashka. Now, first of all, the island is K-R-K. That's it's an correct. interesting word. There must be a vowel in there somewhere, but I don't know what it is. K-R-K. <laughs> That's right. And the island, it's the biggest of all of the islands in Croatia. And Bashka is the biggest beach we saw anywhere. And most of these beaches don't have a lot of amenities on them. It's just the beach is the scene. Okay, and so paint a picture for us. You got your kids there, the sun's going down. What's the scene like? You can see the Velvet Mountains in the distance, and they're pinkish in color. And you have every kind of restaurant around you. You have a little fast food place that sells fried minnows. You have a lovely seafood restaurant that sells high-end wines from the region. But Bashka is a huge beach. You could put a thousand people on the beach and it wouldn't even be close to full. And for us, it was just sort of emblematic of just this vast land of wonders that Croatia was for us. On the south tip of the Isle of Kirk. That's right. K-R-K. Jennifer, let's close just by uh, sharing an important word for our Croatian vocabulary when we travel there. There's one thing you should always know how to say, and it's the Croatian toast. It means to life. You say, živili. Živili. That's right. Uh, how do you say thank you? Havala. Havala. Havala and živili. And živili. Jennifer Wilson, thanks so much for sharing your adventure, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again with further adventures. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tappen with Sarah McCormick. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Thanks for help to the BBC's Western House Studios and to Andrew Wakeling, Kate Mulhern-Graham, and Michael Ann Jerome. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.